Welcome to Sacred and Profane. I'm Martine Halverson Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. We're both professors of religious studies here at the University of Virginia. With the help of faculty and students here at UVA, we explore stories of religion in daily life. We're interested not just in what and why people believe, but how they believe. Yeah, that is to say we're interested in how religious belief and practice affects how people see their place in society, how it shapes our identity and sense of self, and the actions we take because of our beliefs. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda, when roughly a million people were killed over 100 days. It was the culmination of years of growing violence against the Tutsi minority. It's an era that's still not resolved. After the violence, the new government's official stance was to promote unity and forgiveness. But Rwandans continue to debate how to remember the genocide and to ask if it's even possible to forgive. And our colleague, Larisha Hawkins, has come to us with a story about that very question. For me, this story started in 2014 when I was visiting a student of mine in Rwanda. She was working with an organization that was trying to help both victims and perpetrators in the aftermath of the genocide. People don't believe truly that such power of forgiveness can happen. This is my friend Christoph. I am Christoph Mboyingawo. I'm from Rwanda and I'm the director of CARSA. CARSA stands for Christian Action for Reconciliation and Social Assistance. By the way, I should mention here that I eventually joined CARSA's board. I got to know Christoph during my trip in 2014. He's been working on these big questions you raise, Martine, how to remember and how to reconcile for over 20 years now. Can someone forgive uh, another person who have murdered their entire family members and all that truly? Can they live again together? So those are the kind of questions and the doubt that people bring in. And they understand because from the human perspective, it's, it seems to be impossible. Christoph says the closeness of perpetrators and victims can be hard for outsiders to grasp. Rwanda, then and now, is a small country. People know their neighbors well. These were not anonymous killings. Uh, the genocide was committed by the neighbors. It was a genocide of proximity. It was genocide where people had killed their friends, people with whom they grew up, people they knew well. He says that the other thing that's hard for people to understand is what led to the genocide in the first place, the divide between Hutu and Tutsi. It's very real in that people believed in it enough to kill, but it was a division that was encouraged and reinforced by colonial powers in the 20th century. Those names existed, but they were more, they were more social classes based, not ethnic groups. So whoever had 10,000 above was called as Tutsi, and whoever had less than 10 cows or nothing was called as Hutu. In other words, it wasn't an ethnicity, and there wasn't a Hutu or Tutsi part of the country. Most villages and neighborhoods were a mixture of both. 
But when the Belgian colonial government began issuing ID cards, suddenly these labels became a fixed identity. And so, when the colonial came in, especially the, the Belgian, they wanted to uh, use their policy, which was divide for rule. After the genocide, Rwanda's new government had to make a choice. Should the country even continue to exist as one? The divide between the Hutu majority who had carried out the genocide and the Tutsi who had largely been the victims was very real. There were hundreds of thousands of perpetrators and survivors scattered all across the country. It seemed an impossible task to ask them to live together. That's where actually some of the advices, the, the advices right. the government was receiving. Right, from the some, international community. Yes, the international right. community would say, you know, it's impossible, these people cannot live again together. You need to spread the country, you need to divide the country, and one half side, the Tutsi, and the Hutu, and all that. So that was one of the choices. Well, Rwanda still is one country today, so what choice did the government make? Well, it's complicated, but the short version is to stay together as one country, to find the perpetrators and take them to court and hold them accountable. But that presented its own problems. It was a difficult choice to make. One side was, are we going to keep all these people in the prison for forever? How are we going to judge 100,000 people, you know, if we just go through the normal justice system? How long would this take, the cost, the burden, and the weight for the country? So it was difficult until the government decided to use a very traditional way, which is coming from our you know, culture, which is called the Gachacha Court. The Gachacha Courts weren't perfect. There are allegations of corruption and false charges from both survivors and perpetrators. But they allowed survivors to speak out and sent over 100,000 perpetrators to prison. And because the courts were convened across Rwanda with local community leaders giving judgment instead of criminal court judges, justice happened quickly. The Gachacha courts also offered perpetrators a way back into society. People were encouraged from the prisons to come forward speak the truth, confess their crime, and with their sentences being, being reduced. If they confessed their crimes, they would be allowed to return home. It's, I cannot say it's everything is 100 perfect, but I think it helped really. And that shows the will, the political will of bidding reconciliation mm-hmm. after genocide. And all of this worked on a nationwide level. The country stayed together, people began to have faith in the new government. The economy improved. Daily life became routine for many. But Christoph says that while this kind of legal forgiveness was working on a national level, that wasn't true on a personal level for many Rwandans. When perpetrators got out of prison, they went back home. Survivors and perpetrators were once again living in the same towns and villages. They saw each other every day. There is another uh, journey to, to make. 
with all the, the brokennesses and the, the trauma and what people had gone through, there, were, there was a need, obviously, of helping people not only to recover uh, socially, politically, economically, but also to recover psychologically. Both sides were living in fear of each other. The survivors, of course, feared the perpetrators would return and kill again. And the perpetrators feared the survivors too, and the revenge that they might take. You know, as, as human beings, when you've been harmed, when you've been abused, uh, the first reaction is trying to find revenge. I kept thinking, like, how, for how long are we going to live under this situation? Asking difficult questions to myself, trying to find who is God and why God allowed all those things to take place. Discovering that uh, as a Christian, we're called to be brothers and sisters. We're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Christoph told me that the thing that he feared was that the genocide generation would be able to tolerate each other, but not truly forgive or trust one another. It seems like the distinction that's being drawn is how to forgive each other sort of in an abstract level. And then there's the hard business of actually waking up and looking your neighbor in the face or looking your neighbors in the eye when you pass each other on the street. I think this distinction relates a lot to the question of what reconciliation actually is. You could have a legal agreement to forgive or at least to live in proximity to one another, but the trauma beneath the surface affects everything. The way that this also gets to identity and politics is that the government's mantra is there? there's no Hutu, there's no Tutsi, right? There's one Rwanda. It's choosing a kind of amnesia, as one scholarly article talks about it, versus remembrance towards the goal of reconciliation. Uh, so Christoph seems to be implying that toleration doesn't require any memory, but forgiveness uh, requires or moves through memory. Right. We have a saying in Kinyarwanda that you can run away from something chasing you from the outside, but you cannot outrun something chasing you from the inside. You're still carrying all the memories, all the experience, all the background are with you. The, better, the best way then is not to run away and say, how can we not live forever with this because it kills it destroys. It's not helpful. So what do you do? Well, what Christoph and Karsa did was go into the villages. They find what he calls direct survivors and direct perpetrators of the genocide. So they looked for a perpetrator and the surviving family of the perpetrator's victim, and in some case, victims. We just don't just pick any any survivor perpetrator, we, we paired them based on what this person had done to this other person. You can imagine that people have never talked to one another and they have unsolved underneath issues. He starts by asking them to sit down in a group. And we work a journey with them. We start with workshop, which takes seven days. So these workshops that I visited this past summer in Rwanda, 
The curriculum that's utilized in these workshops is essentially PTSD training. And because CARS is a Christian organization, it often is interlaced with Bible verses that are relevant to things like forgiveness or loving your enemy as your neighbor. And essentially, over the seven days, perpetrator and victim rehearse what happened during the genocide. And they begin to realize that, for instance, the person that they feared all of their life also fears them. And so going to the workshop, you realize how hard fought the process of reconciliation is and that it's not a panacea, but that the workshop is a step on a journey towards pursuing reconciliation. And the workshop basically becomes like a, a key to open up a starting point or a beginning of a journey of forgiveness and reconciliation. But the workshops aren't the end. The next step is a cow. We provide a cow. It's uh, being uh, shared by the survivor perpetrator. That's the take of the cow together. They feed the cow together. They um, you know, do everything together as a way of allowing them to meet on a regular basis. It's not just, I forgive you, but bye. I won't see you again. They share life. They work now a new life together. Not because their life is perfect, but because now they have agreed to actually deal with the challenges in their journey together. So the survivor and the perpetrator raise a cow together. It gives them a reason to assemble, to talk. And then there's a second step. When the cow has its first calf, the survivor gifts that calf to the perpetrator. Why does the survivor have to give something to this person who killed their family, Christoph? Why, why do the survivor should share the cow with the perpetrator? Uh, I think the question is, why do we encourage survivors to forgive the perpetrator? The gift of forgiveness, for me, it's more important and powerful than the gift of the cow. But also in Rwanda, a cow is the highest gift you can give to offer to someone. Mm. To a friend, basically. You don't give a cow to an enemy or to mm. someone you meet on the street or someone you don't know. You know, as humans, sometimes we pretend. You might pretend and say, you know, I've forgiven this person, but I think the cow is just a physical sign to prove that truly. It's not words. It's like, it's like for Christian, you believe, but you request to be baptized. Why? Baptism is not important by itself. Baptism is important as a sign of beliefs and, 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 and a new life. So it's, it's the same way. So I'm, I'm really struck by this story, thinking uh, how much we could learn from it. So we never had that conversation after, for example, the Civil War or after the eras of slavery. Christoph's example is so powerful because the perpetrator has to recognize her or himself as a perpetrator and actively ask the victim for forgiveness. That's drawing on a Christian practice of confession and repentance and forgiveness that we often think of as very personal 
but it can be so politically important too. Um, and it's not something that in the U.S. we've really seen in the past. Yeah. I think what Carsa has taught me is one reason we can't enter that conversation is because we've never had a real reckoning, a real truth and reconciliation process like South Africa did after apartheid. Our narrative in the United States, from my perspective as a political scientist and someone who studies religion and history accompanied by that and race, is that for centuries in some cases, the perpetrators have never admitted either their direct involvement or their complicity in white supremacy. We talk about democracy and moving forward and everyone's on an equal footing. It's difficult to move forward when one side is is willing to step into these conversations, but the other side, in essence, isn't bringing anything um, to the table. It's a vulnerable process. And so that admission of guilt um, is part and parcel of what makes these communities in Rwanda remarkable, that it's that it's the perpetrator themselves who have, yes, confessed guilt in a court, but who come to their neighbor and confess again um, the ways that they've hurt their community and hurt their neighbor. What I find so powerful about Christoph's example is that forgiveness is not an idea. It's not a belief. It's an action. It's something that you do. And there's something that strikes me as so powerful about the requirement to repeat it day after day, too. Yes. So part of the way that the workshop struck me was seeing the ways that the individual who especially had committed um, acts, heinous acts of genocide, came forward along with the survivor and repeated in front of the entire group on the last day of the workshop how they had hurt their neighbor, how they had killed members of one's family. And somehow that standing together in solidarity with someone whose life, family's life, that they had literally snuffed out, or in some cases tried to kill that very person, right? And the person survived in some cases, embodied solidarity with their neighbor, with their perpetrator, but the act of speaking, um, the act of verbalizing, and the act of also being stood with as a, as a, as a stance of forgiveness um, mattered as a way of practicing that. You know Desmond Tutu says there's no future without forgiveness. And the, and the question is, what's the alternative of reconciliation in a broken society? What's the alternative? If we don't promote forgiveness, we don't promote reconciliation, what, what's, what's the other option? I don't see any. I think what people need is to acknowledge the realities and sit down on the table and look back and not trying to ignore the past and not trying to avoid the past. But it's like driving a car. You have the side mirror, it's so small, but you still look back. 
but you concentrate more in the future. But when you ignore looking back because you're moving towards the future, maybe you, you, you have an accident. Watch the past. Learn from the past and move towards the future. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program and communications manager is Ashley Duffalo. Our intern is Laura Logan. Today's show was reported by Larisha Hawkins. You can find out more about Christoph's work at CARSA at carsaministry.org. Music on this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. For more on our work, head to religionlab.virginia.edu or follow us on Twitter at The Religion Lab.